0: Old Testament reading this morning is in the form of a responsive reading in the bulletin. It comes from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please read this responsively with me. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The
1: kings of the earth take and the rulers gather to the tools of the Lord, and against
0: his anointed. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will
1: proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I
0: Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule over them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore you kings be earth.
1: Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice
0: in the Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course." Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your chicken together, children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see... Me, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks Thanks be to God. Children, you may go to your respective classes. Let's return to the scripture that we read from Luke 13. uh, With Bill just a few moments ago. We're continuing this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning. We're continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ as uh, seen through the eyes and related to us through the mind uh, of Luke, the Gentile, the only Gentile writer of the gospel. The title of the message this morning, Facing the Intimidation of the World. Uh, that's a subject. Uh, We're going to see the Pharisees come to Jesus uh, and they make an effort to intimidate him. Everything about our worship uh, this morning, that's been been the theme. From the call to worship, the first hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. uh, It's written by Martin Luther. He spent much of his adult life in fear for his life. People actually trying to take him prison, trying to put him on trial, trying to take his life. And this was his answer. Uh, I I challenge you this morning. uh, After this message, after the final hymn, after we eat, when you go home, uh, go back and read the words. And, and you'll see, it's just Martin Luther looking right at the world saying, I will not fear your intimidation. Uh, and then we will come to the last hymn, uh, the, the uh, glorious things of thee are spoken. And it's talking about the church, the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, that is his, And it talks about how uh, as enemies come against the gospel, against the church, we can look at them and speak with assurance and speak with confidence and know that the end has already been written. Uh, So that's where we are this morning. Uh, I meant to make that announcement about the different parts of the worship before the service this morning. Uh, but uh, that's where we are. And before we come to this particular passage, let's pray and ask the Jesus who was there then, who's here this morning, let's ask him to make it plain to each of us. Our Father, there are needy folks in our congregation this morning. There are needy folks who are fellow family members at Christ Presbyterian. This is the one time during the week when we gather as a congregation of priests. And so this morning... As always, we bring these folks before you. We're being priests for them. Our Father, we pray for Jim Bennington. We pray especially right now for him that, Father, you would lead him to a place where he will be safe. Give him an open mind to receive counsel, to know what to do. We pray for Billy Griggs. Thank you for how you've strengthened him. We pray that, Father, you would strengthen him. Priscilla Turner. We pray for her. Father, give her strength for this time. Father, you have made her to be a a, a great light, a pillar of strength. As she stands upon your word, we pray that you would keep her anchored able to sing songs in the midnight. Our Father, we pray for Rick Abernathy's father, for Mr. Abernathy. We pray that you would bring healing. Thank you for what these tests revealed. And we pray now that in coming weeks that this procedure that will be done will bring a complete healing to him. Our Father, bless those in this congregation who are hurting this morning. We pray that, Father, you will heal broken marriages, that you'll heal broken relationships between parents and children. We pray, our Father, for those of us that are in need and we don't know it, we're too proud to see it or too proud to admit it. Our Father, humble us that we might call upon your name. Now, John Sartell cannot speak this morning so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we've heard your voice in this room many times. And we pray that again this morning we will hear. That you will speak to us only as you can speak. And that you will change us, maybe change some of us for the first time. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Facing the intimidation of the world. When was the first time you heard the phrase post-Christian era? Now, some of you are young enough to say, I never had to hear that phrase the first time. I've been living in it for the last few years. But I can remember when it wasn't so. Uh, The first time I heard that phrase was in 1969 listening to Dr. Francis Schaeffer, as he talked about our present culture there in the 60s. He used that term, post-Christian era. In other words, after the Christian era. I'd been raised in a Judeo-Christian world that had been, the world was there. But there was a general friendliness to Christianity. How our world has changed. If there was when and if there was hostility toward Christianity, it was usually well hidden. It was usually well closed. But it's not that way now. (laughs) How the world has changed. We live in a world where the church has been marginalized. Even here in Fayette County. The truth is that the church is being marginalized. Let me tell you. The great percentage, the huge percentage of people in Fayette County are not in church this morning, and they have no inclination to go. In the early 90s, I was led to preach through the book of Acts. I didn't know why at the time, but through preaching through Acts, I saw Jesus continually sending out his disciples chapter after chapter, verse after verse, episode after episode, sending out his disciples into a relativistic, pluralistic, hostile world. And Jesus knew he was doing that. He wasn't sending them to a Sunday school class. He wasn't sending them to worship. He was sending them out into a world where their very lives, in their lives of their wives or the lives of their husbands or the lives of of their children, were at risk because of their faith. That study was a lesson to me in how Christ taught us to respond to the intimidation of the world. The world is intimidating. The church usually responds to intimidation. Christians usually respond. I usually respond in one of three ways. The, the first way is the world come and inti- comes and inti- intimidates. I, I develop a monastic attitude. Well, I'm just going off here by myself. I'm going, So join the monastery and get away from the world. And I don't touch the world and the world doesn't touch me. And I can read my Bible and I can study theology and I can grow. But there's absolutely no contact with the world. Jesus didn't send us or send his disciples to a monastery. He didn't say to to Matthew and John and James. He didn't say, now, go build a a monastery and get away from the world. He said, go into the world and preach the gospel. Go into the Roman Empire. Go to Rome and preach the gospel. The second way that the church or Christians... Handle this intimidation is simply conform to, to the world. The world comes and intimidates, and, and we back off. And, and we join the world. That's what happened to the in the mainline denominations across the board, whether you're Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, whatever, there, there's a Baptist, there's a, there's a liberal Baptist church, or a liberal Presbyterian church, or a liberal Lutheran church, and there's a conservative. And the liberal wing of the church of the world came and said, oh, you know, uh, God doesn't become flesh. You can't believe that Jesus really did those miracles. And the church said, that's right. You know, we'll agree with you there. And the church changed the message. They do conform. Now, sometimes we do this in a very subtle way. We hang on to our faith. But outwardly, we identify with the world. And it's, it's not just high school students or college students that do that. We do that all of our lives. We, we won't stand out there. Folks, that's conforming to the world. And the third way that is the way that we find described in Scripture. Third way to react to this intimidation is lovingly but boldly confront the world. But you do that at risk. And it usually costs you. Last Sunday, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. We say that this is a table for sinners. It's a table of grace. And so it is. But this is a table where we also see what the world does to Jesus? We're all crucified. Him. And when we take, when we say this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for sinners. Jesus stands on the other side of that table. Remember, Jesus in the upper room, the first time he appeared to his disciples together in that upper room. What does it say? He showed them his hands. He showed them his side. He showed them the scars of his mission. And then what did he say? What did he say? As the father has sent me, so send I you. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He said, you're going to have scars, Matthew. You're going to have scars, Peter. This morning, in the episode before us, the world tried to intimidate Jesus. Let's see what his response was. There's a great message here for us. First, Jesus understood that intimidation by the world was inevitable. It was inevitable. So you first see an inevitable intimidation. Look at verse 31. At that time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. The Pharisees, we've seen it all through the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees had been stalking Jesus like a lion stalks an antelope. Were they really concerned about Jesus? Did they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we're so concerned about your health. You know, Herod wants to kill you. Get away. Get away. Now, think about it. Jesus, we've already seen this. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Galilee was a stronghold for Herod. I mean, that's where he officially governed. He was king there. Well, Jesus was leaving Galilee. So why did they say this? Well, Herod also had great power down in Jerusalem. Remember when Pilate discovered in the trial of Jesus, he discovered that that Jesus was a Galilean? What does he do? He sends him to Herod. Herod's in town. He sends him to Herod. What what were they trying? What were these Pharisees trying to do? They didn't want him in Galilee. They didn't want him in Jerusalem. They were saying, Herod is out to kill you. He had already killed John the Baptist. He's about to kill you, Jesus. They would say, just get out. We don't want to hear this anymore. You're blasphemous. You claim to be God. Get out. They wanted him to go back to the desert. Folks, if you're a Christian, if you're here in Fayette County, now we often say, Lord, we thank you where we we live in a country where we are free to worship, and we still are free to worship. We're going to become more and more as time goes by, we're going to become more challenged on that. But and we thank God for that freedom that we have right now. But that freedom was given. And was earned in a previous day. It was earned in a different culture. Or it was given in a different culture. It was given, it was understood, and it was written in to the Constitution because these people had come from a place and they had suffered religious persecution. And said, this will be a freedom of worship. And that that remains. But there is an overt and covert intimidation and hostility. Whether it's in the classroom or in your place of business, the country club, wherever. If you go and you stand for Jesus, In those places, you'll feel the pressure. Go stand with Jesus when he says that all of us have a heart bent towards sin, that we're not basically good people. Stand in the world when he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Stand with him when he says that he is the Son of God and he is the only way of salvation. Stand with him when he says our works are totally insufficient for salvation. That we can only be saved by God's grace. Stand with him when he says that in his church, among his people, there will be no racial or national prejudice. Stand with him when he weeps over babies being aborted. stand with him when he calls homosexuality a sin and sexual intimacy outside of marriage a sin. You've done that. And you've seen and you've felt the hostility. The world opposed Jesus in the gospels. The world opposed Jesus and those that followed him on every page of the book of Acts. Acts. Now, maybe we are saying, you know, John, the world does not react to my Christianity that way. I just haven't experienced that kind of discomfort. Well, I can tell you then it's your version of Christianity. It's not Jesus' version. Jesus said it plainly. He told the disciples over and over and over again. That it was the nature of the world. The very nature of the world. To stand opposed to him. And his word. Maybe the reason people aren't responding to our Christianity. Is that we hadn't been practicing. What Jesus said. In the path that Jesus laid. Clarence Jordan was founder of Koineo Farms in the 1950s. And he said it this way. It's on your scripture sheet if you'll look at it. Quote, it is difficult to be indifferent to a wide awake Christian, a real live person of God. It is even more difficult to be indifferent to a whole body of Christians like this. You can hate them or you can love them. But one thing is certain, you can't ignore them. There is something about them that won't let you. You can't put them out of your mind any more than you can shake off your shadow. They confront you with an entirely different way of life, a new way of thinking, a chain set of values, a higher standard. In short, they face you with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. These people you must crucify or crown, for they are either mighty or wrong, are mighty right. Are we following Christ in light of these words? Or are we practicing some kind of weak imitation? Jesus said that you're going to live in the world. you're going to encounter inevitable intimidation. Secondly, Jesus had such confidence in God's sovereign hand that he held the plans of evil men in derision. I love this part, a disregarding derision. How do you handle intimidation? If you're like Jesus, you're going to hold that intimidation in derision. He replied, look at the verse. He replied, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons. I'll heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. When he said, Go tell that fox, he was not paying some kind of backhanded compliment to Herod. You've got to remember, Herod had killed John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Messiah's official ambassador. For that reason, and many others, we'll see toward the end of our study in Luke, Jesus held. Herod in utter contempt. What did he do? Do you see this derision in another way? When Pilate sent him to stand before Herod and Herod said, Do a trick, Jesus. You're a Messiah. I've heard all these miracles. Do a trick. What did Jesus do? Jesus said nothing. Jesus talked to Pilate. He talked to Caiaphas and the Pharisees. He held Herod in such derision that he would not even speak to him. He remained silent. In Jesus' day, to call someone a fox was to call him treacherous, cowardly, like a, a fox kills hens in the hen house. Jesus was saying, you tell that treacherous coward the one that killed the greatest prophet Israel has ever seen, and that prophet didn't have a sword, and he slew him. You tell him, I hold his threats in complete disregard. Where did Jesus get this? Look at Psalm 2. This is why we read Psalm 2 in our worship this morning. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. Herods of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. Now Jesus minds it's against God and against Jesus whom God has anointed. And these nations say, these kings say, let us break their bonds in pieces. The bonds of the Lord. In his anointing, let's break their bonds in pieces. Let's cast away their cords from us. We'll not be ruled by their absolutes. He who sits, so how does God respond? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. Do you understand? Jesus was actually looking. This is a son of God who could speak one word and the universe would disappear And he looks at Herod. He looks at these threats. And he it says in here. What's it say? The Lord who sits in heavens shall laugh. That was Jesus laughing that day. Really? Herod's going to do this. Diocletian was one of the emperors of Rome. He is known for his outstanding persecution of the church. He didn't start out that way. Actually, when he became emperor, uh, he was tolerant of Christianity. But because of the influence of a vice regent under him named Gallerus, uh, a great persecution broke out. And Diocletian became a part of, of Gallerus' plan to eradicate the church. They said, we're, we're out. We're going to eradicate Christianity. The Christians went underground and the emperor thought he had succeeded. And he, Diocletian put out a coin and on that coin was written, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of Roman gods is restored. God laughed. Diocletian, do you really think You really think that you're going to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he laughed. There were more Christians in the empire when Diocletian started. There were more Christians in the end when Diocletian died than when he started. You see, this is, what the, this is what the church has done. This has been the position of, of the church. Theodore Beza led the Reformation in France. He succeeded Calvin in Geneva. And even though he was in Switzerland, he supported the Huguenots, the French Protestants in his homeland. The human Huguenots faced great persecution in France, and during that time, Beza wrote, "It is truly the lot of the Church of God for which I speak to endure the blows and not to strike them. But may it please to remember, may it please you to remember, that it is an anvil which remains and the hammers are worn out." What was he saying? No one, no ruler, no army, no long persecution can halt the work of God. The anvil will remain. This word is going to remain. This church is going to remain. Where did Basil get that? He got it from Jesus. That looked at derision. I I said, really? Really? That's what Herod's going to do. We saw inevitable intimidation, a disregarding derision. Thirdly, Jesus had such a sense of his own identity and calling that he would not be distracted. There was a confident continuation, a confident continuation with who he was. Go tell that fox I'll drive out the demons, heal the people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He keeps coming back to persecution. You know, he, he keeps a you know, he, he keeps saying, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets. I will die at Jerusalem. What was Jesus saying? I know who I am. I know what I've been called to do. None of Herod's threats. You see, any threat that the world lays on you does not change who you are. The world cannot undo you being born again. It can't undo your relationship to Jesus Christ. It can't undo what God's word is. That's what Jesus understood. There's a great story that I, I love. In 1580 a Dutch Protestant leader by the name of Claes was arrested and condemned as a heretic. Eventually, he was burned at the stake. This man was killed, burned because of his faith in Jesus Christ. The world told him to change and he wouldn't change. When the tragedy was over, he had a, he had a wife and a young son. When the actual event was over. Do you know what that wife did? That wife would not be intimidated. She took her young son. Mothers, imagine you doing this. Imagine the world has just tortured your husband to death. Because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. She took her young son through the back streets of that Dutch city. To the place where he was burned. She didn't hide it from him. She didn't. You know, try to hide the awful truth from him. She took him there. She scooped up some ashes and she put them in a little leather pouch. And she tied that leather pouch around her son's neck. And she said very purposely, I place these ashes on your heart. Whenever and wherever you go in this world where Christ is slandered, these ashes will beat on your heart. And you will speak without fear. Wow. Was she intimidated? No, <laughs> she understood what Jesus was doing. She understood it. Don't forget. That's Jesus. This passage tells us: Don't forget who you are. I watched. You've heard me say this so often. I watched my father and his, his sisters die from, from Alzheimer's. And there came a day when he, he did not know who I was. But there also came a day when he did not know who he was. He didn't know his name. People, when you don't know who you are, you use the ability to be who you are. Believe me, Satan wants us to forget He wants us to have a spiritual Alzheimer's so that we forget who we are. He's saying, son, remember who your father is. Remember what your father did. There's ashes on his heart. A lot of us are wearing crosses around our necks this morning. That's good. I love that. We have crosses on our walls or crosses up in our homes. That's the sign he gave us. She put the ashes from her husband around that boy's neck. God gave us the cross of his son. Finally, Jesus understood the eternal peril of those who opposed him and wept over them. You see, a caring compassion. a inevitable intent, intimidation, a disregarding derision, a confident continuation, a caring compassion. This passage ends so strong and so oddly. He goes from speaking this way to the Pharisees and to the crowd, and then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were unwilling. Look, your house is left desolate. Jesus looks at this. And he knows this means their destruction. Their overt and covert hostility will mean their destruction. And instead of cursing them, he weeps over them. In the Hebrew language, when someone said a name twice like that, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it was terms of endearment. It was was pathos. Jesus, the son of God, had been there when David had first conquered that city on a hill. He had been there when kings came from all over the world to visit. He had been there when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered and left the city in ruins. He had been there years later when Nehemiah and Ezra came back and began to rebuild the city. He knew he was to be crucified in Jerusalem and how he loved her. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard to weep over a world that will stone you. That's what we're called to do. Harvey Kahn, Dr. Harvey Kahn, His home with the Lord now. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary uh, in Philadelphia. But he was known all over the world in the Christian community for his heart for missions. We had him come to independent when we didn't have much of a missions program. We were just a small church, fledgling church at the time. And he came to talk to our elders, our deacons about how you build an outreach program, how you build a missions program that will take the gospel to the world. It was Saturday night, and he was in our living room. We were watching a, a television show that was a news documentary. And it was a news documentary about a completely debauched and utterly wicked Group of people. It was awful. Even Harry Reisner, who was uh, acting as a, 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 a newsman, he was anchoring this documentary. At the end of it, he was just ashen. And I said, I looked at it and I turned to Harvey and I said, Some people need killing, they just do. And Harvey looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he said, John, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. Where did he get that? He got it from Jesus. Jesus wept over the very city that would take his life. We're going to sing a great hymn now. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion.